0: Jeff here. Um, quick note before we get going. We have two live podcast events coming up that I'm really excited about because I finally get to venture out of my home office here. Look for the Ed Surge podcast at South by Southwest EDU next month, where we'll be part of the podcast stage with an episode we will record in front of a live audience as a conference session there. And we'll be at ISTE Live in late June in New Orleans doing a live podcast there as well. If you're going to either one of those events, please um, look up the details on the conference schedule and come talk to me after the session. I'd love to meet some listeners in person. Now to this week's episode, which is guest hosted by my colleague, Becky Koenig.
1: What does it take for a university to be excellent, but not exclusionary? And can a college even be both? Hello and welcome to the EdSearch podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Becky Koenig, a reporter and editor here at EdSearch. This week, I'm talking with the co-authors of a book titled Broke, The Racial Consequences of Underfunding Public Universities. The book takes a close look at two colleges in California that primarily serve America's new majority, that is, students who may be the first in their families to seek higher education, who are people of color, who are often low-income these two colleges in the book also have grand ambitions to be top research universities. So in other words, they're trying to break out of the traditional narrative about what makes a great university by saying they can be a top research institution and they can educate disadvantaged student populations. It's a bold argument that higher ed doesn't have to be exclusive to be prestigious. In fact, leaders of these two institutions maintain that education excellence should be accessible and inclusive. They call this kind of higher ed institution, one that is accessible and excellent, the new university in the book broke. These new universities face a problem, though. One is that state dollars for public universities have been shrinking, just as more and more students who want a college degree are less and less able to pay high tuition bills. Another problem, according to the authors, is that simply enrolling a diverse set of students, like these new universities do, is just the first step in a much bigger mission. After all, once new students come in, colleges have to make sure they are teaching them effectively, that students feel comfortable on campus, and that they are supported all the way through graduation and into the job market. The other day, I connected with the authors of Broke. Uh, Laura T. Hamilton, Professor and Chair of Sociology at the University of California at Merced.
2: Hello, good to be here. Um, Thanks so much.
1: And co-author Kelly Nielsen, Senior Research Analyst in the Center for Research and Evaluation at the University of California at San Diego. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for having us.
1: I started by asking Laura Hamilton to define a bit more clearly what a new university is.
2: So new universities are universities that serve underserved student populations. So students of color, students who are from low-income families, and they serve large portions of them. Uh, They also tend to, they are research universities. They focus a great deal on research. They tend to be in the top 200 uh, research universities in the country. Um, They often did not start with the student population that they have they a lot of them started as predominantly white and over time have shifted to serve new student populations. Um and this is partly a function of the changing student population in the US. Um, some you know demographic changes, also the increasing wealth gap, which means that more and more students who come to college have less family wealth to rely on. Um, and these schools have taken these students and really said this is going to be the center, the heart of what we do here as a research university. We are going to do top-notch research with this amazing student population that other schools um, have historically not done a good job at serving.
1: Each of you, I believe, focused on a specific new university in your research for this work. And I wondered if you could tell us what each of you found at your campus and what was similar and different which suggests not all u- new universities you know, function exactly the same.
0: Yeah, it might be great to start with the University of California-Riverside because the University of California-Riverside, um, as Laura said, it started out as a predominantly white university like many other new universities um, have. Um, and it transitioned over time into this new organizational form or this campus that said we're going to sort of remake what it means to be an elite research university Um, and so riverside um is had an opportunity to really become one of the first new universities because it went through a period of time where the campus was depopulated um, as a result of uh, an environmental catastrophe and this laid the groundwork for UCR to um, repopulate the campus with an entirely different student body and this was a student body that had um, come from the surrounding area as the surrounding area had transformed. So this is really a story not just of a a university campus but of a um, changing urban geography Right. So as the Inland Empire area of Southern California, which is about 60 miles east of Los Angeles, transformed into a much more um, working class and a um, communities of color and the campus needed students it went into these communities and it attracted these students to UCR. And so over time it became not a predominantly white university anymore, but this uh, much more diverse campus. Um, But UCR was also unique in that it had um, transformed the culture of the campus to really embrace this new student body. And this was um, driven by several unique features to the campus. One is that it had a very robust infrastructure of cultural organizations that were there to really serve this new student body that came in. So starting in the 1970s, the uh, campus built these cultural centers um, that became real um, strong hubs to provide support to these new students and make them really um, incorporated into the culture of the campus. Um, and then it also benefited from a, a sort of strong leadership that really um, said, not only are we going to bring these students in, in order to rebuild our campus, um, but we are going to make sure that they get a UC caliber education. Um, and so UCR not only transformed demographically, but it transformed culturally. Um, And this is a big part of the story for new universities. Many new universities today can change the demographic uh, quality of its student body, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the campus itself has changed um, at a a cultural level. It can really remain a predominantly white institution, um, even if that student body changes. And so UCR is a great example of the need to really do both things um, as a new university. Yeah, and
2: UC Merced provides quite an interesting contrast for UC Riverside. UC Merced was built in 2005, opened its doors in 2005, and you know it's a school that should have been built a long time ago. There's been need in the Central Valley of California to have a UC, a UC school in this portion of the valley, and there were, you know, for decades, you know, legislators, different folks were saying that the school was gonna get built. It took a long time in part because this is an area of California that's often neglected. When it finally gets built in 2005, it from its start attracts a different population than the rest of the UC system, and pretty quickly, um, you know, looks like a new university, it's built in a very different historical period of time. So it did not benefit from the post-Cold War higher education spending that really helped um, Riverside create quite a robust infrastructure. So the school was really grappling with how to grow in a circumstance in which the state no longer funds, the building of campuses. So Merced was facing a different set of questions. It was also a, a, as a new school, didn't have the kind of um, coherence around the culture of what what this campus is about, who these students serve. It was sort of had a lot of different identities and was casting about for one clear, one clear idea. And as I mentioned, because the school didn't have a lot of money to draw from and, and was in the period in which the state was no longer building campuses, it ended up doing something that is fairly unusual. Uh, they built half of the campus through a public-private partnership, which is pretty, um, pretty not common. Usually schools do this if they're wanting to build housing, but not half of the campus. And this was the result of sort of being pushed into a financial corner. So a lot of the comparisons that we talk about in the book, both schools are struggling for resources, but definitely Merced didn't have the infrastructure. Riverside was starting to crumble. Merced didn't have it. And also, some of the deficits in terms of resources for students, uh, most of whom are disadvantaged, were pretty acute at UC Merced in terms of staffing. In a way that were they were clearly there at Riverside, but they felt more acute here, to the point where administration said, "You know what? We're just going to have to accept tolerable suboptimization." Which means we're going to have to accept that our students and their faculty are going to have a you know a level of suboptimal support, and we're just going to have to find it tolerable. Which, of course, it's not tolerable, particularly for students who really depend on their universities to provide supports for them. And for the student population that UC Merced and UC Riverside serve, it's extremely important that their schools have enough resources to offer that kind of support, whether it be academic, uh, mental health support, cultural programming, all of those
1: things are extremely important for these students, even more so than others. We might get back to that phrase, uh, sub-optimization, a little bit later, um, because it's very interesting and I would do want to talk more about it. Um, there are a number of tensions that you describe in the book, emerging at these institutions. Um, Among them, uh, for one, is a sort of prestige penalty that comes along with the student body, Um, despite being a research institution. um, You know, I suppose the cause and effect is a little circular, but um, these places are not necessarily regarded on you know the the rankings lists as they might be if they didn't serve the students that they serve, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about questions of prestige at these places and and how it sort of complicates um, things for students, for faculty, for the administration
0: Sure, yeah, so I think well one place to start is to um, is to point out that the UC is really a best case example the U c system. Um, operates on a level of formal equality between the campuses, and so um, the the prestige um, functions a bit different than a system where you may have a flagship university and then you have a sort of lower tier universities below them. The UC is has effectively um, nine equal campuses, um, and so the question of prestige um, at UC nonetheless maps on to the sort of racial distribution of students across the system. Um, And so we can see just in the UC where where it really is the best case, um, there is still a a kind of prestige problem that comes along. And so what these campuses really um, tried to do to address this prestige penalty um, was to say, we are going to... um, try to remake what makes a prestigious campus along the lines of inclusion and access, right, and the success of a diverse student body, which is different than what had historically been the basis of prestige in higher education, which had been rooted in exclusion, right? Um, And so UC Riverside was a great example because UC Riverside went and they said, we are going to directly challenge the way that rankings get um, produced and the way that these metrics of prestige get produced by showing that we are doing a far better job at fulfilling the mission of public higher education um, by providing access to all of California's students and families and successfully um, educating them at the level of a UC campus. So really providing a, a world-class education to these students and also being a world-class research institution. So, so not compromising the research, um, but also remaking what it means to be prestigious.
2: Yeah, I'd like to just sort of add to what Kelly is saying that these schools are also Implicitly presenting a really big challenge to the way that we assign merit. I think in studying Riverside and Merced, it really highlights the fact that the production of merit in the college admissions system is extremely attached and linked to race and class. Because merit is something that requires resources to produce. So you can produce a record that looks meritorious. The more money you have, and wealth is racialized in the United States, so the more money you have, the more class resources you have, the more racial privilege you have, the more likely you are going to make your child look, and look is a key word here, look meritorious. And that gets mapped onto these institutions. Those racialized hierarchies get mapped onto institutions and then money flows along racialized hierarchies. And that makes the schools that serve disadvantaged students have less resources and they struggle to, to really meet the needs of these students. And pushing back against that model kind of throws into relief a lot of the problems with that model and the ways in which race and class are baked into prestige, such that what makes a university prestigious and in, in the current system is simply how many white and rich students they enroll. And that, you know, that fact is often sort of hidden under layers. It's, it's, you know, made to seem like these are, you know, high achieving students who don't have resources that are creating that, producing that merit. So there's something powerful about the message that
1: that Kelly was just sharing. Um, and at the same time, we live in a period where um, the ideas that some of these new universities are promoting, accessible excellence, inclusive excellence, I believe are two of the ways they talk about it, um, do have a certain power to attract money and attention. And I that was what was among the most interesting parts for me is that um, they're sort of pushing back against this rankings and merit system. um, But they need their students to do it. I wonder if you could provide some examples or, or tell some stories about how that plays out and who benefits from that inclusive excellence message. Yeah,
2: I'll start and then I'll, I'll uh, shift to Kelly to share a little bit about a unique relationship uh, between UC Riverside and Pepsi. When you, when you have a system that is financed increasingly by public money, so these are, or, sorry, private money, these are public institutions that are losing state don- state appropriations. They're increasingly reliant on tuition, They're reliant on uh, corporate donations. They're reliant on philanthropic investments. They're reliant on their alumni to give money back. You start to have to figure out what you can sell. And the thing that schools that serve disadvantaged students can sell is precisely that. And it, it creates this really interesting conundrum because on one hand, I, you know, I really would love to see schools that serve these student populations celebrated and recognized. They should be. They're doing exactly what public universities at this moment in, in history should be doing. On the other hand, it creates this dynamic in which they sometimes extract resources through their students. And this, isn't, this is not unlike what an elite white institution does, relies on the network's And the money of its students it's very similar in that regard except for the fact that they're extracting resources from disadvantaged populations and in some cases sort of using the marginalization of their students to attract attention in this sort of um i wouldn't say tokenistic way but there's something about it that doesn't feel quite right uh, the example I can share is when the when UC Merced had an opportunity to write a story for the New York Times about its uh, its DACA recipients, so undocumented students in the state of California, their dreamers, um, hardworking students, and they started the article with these like adversity narratives, like selling sort of the the history and struggle of these uni- of these students and making a narrative that the university is uplifting them and you know is sort of the savior in this narrative and also ended up including a bunch of personal information about these students that also made them a target potentially for a lot of uh, negative backlash that article got them donations but it's unclear to me that th- those particular students would ever see those donations it's also you know, unclear to me that, you know, asking marginalized people and communities to sort of package a narrative of adversity and sell it to folks in order to get money or support back, that that is also exploitative and extractive. So it's a it's a bit of a it's a, a bit of a challenge, and that's also represented in what Kelly's going to share with you about about Riverside.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, the point that. Laura makes is that there are positive benefits oftentimes to students of sort of doing these transactions, right? Because the institutions are really the universities are um, in a position to to sort of attract these resources and then funnel them to students or to create more infrastructure that can really support them. And when it works, it's, it's, it's great. Um, one of the key Uh, functions of a a university is to help students transition into the labor market and to forge relationships with organizations that can hire graduates of these universities. And, you know, there's great research on this happening um, at elite private universities um, by uh, Lauren Rivera and Amy Binder and others who have looked at that transition from, say, Harvard to Wall Street. Um, But less has been looked at at these new universities that are um, in very much the same position of trying to help their students. And at UC Riverside, uh, the case that we focused on was a relationship between UC Riverside and Pepsi Company. Um, And this relationship was forged by former graduates of UC Riverside that had um, gone into that sort of middle management of Pepsi, they were Managing bottling plants and distribution plants, and working with the communities in um, poor uh, parts of Los Angeles, and they were creating these relationships to get students on this managerial track out of UC Riverside. And now, this is um, in many ways a, a very good thing. These are good jobs. Um, the men that we interviewed for this uh, for this part of the book um, were. They, they liked the work that they were doing um, and were very happy with this trajectory. Um, and they were bringing the students in and, and creating these opportunities for them to come and work in these communities where they knew that students from schools like USC and UCLA were not gonna be interested in, right? They went to UC Riverside knowing full well that UC Riverside students would be more willing and in some cases, they imagined them to even be grateful to be on this sort of management pipeline, even if it meant working in the bottling facilities where more um, elite grads would not want to work or going into the communities where they could work with local communities to create things like um, Tapatio flavored uh, chips, right? Frito-Lay and, and these other types of products. And so they were very much relying on the fact that these were um, working class students of color who were on this particular pipeline. Um, and Pepsi then, and and through these uh, former graduates, were bringing resources back into UC Riverside. They were making donations. They were supporting things like um, Black graduation, which was a really um, core part of what the Black cultural programming on campus was doing. So, so it was a in many ways, a very positive relationship, but it was also a a relationship that created these hierarchies or reproduced these hierarchies that we see in higher education in the labor market itself.
1: And it's interesting because it sounds like on one hand, in this example, Pepsi is sort of, I don't know that it would use this term, but sort of recognizing like the cultural competencies of these students, which are valuable for their business, but it seems like perhaps not clear whether those skills are, you know, compensated the way skills are from graduates of other campuses, whether these students knew that perhaps they had, there was some sort of like separate box for them to be working in as opposed to where graduates of other places were working. Very interesting
0: yeah and these are questions that that definitely um, deserve and need more research um, you know they they were it, it was clear that there was a, a certain sort of position for students from from more elite institutions um, and there was a position for for UC riverside students and the, and they were and they were quite different yeah
1: um, underlying all of all of the book is the fact that states have been sort of disinvesting or investing less in higher education. And one of the strategies to deal with funding cuts um, is to enroll more students uh, and yet not necessarily um, have campuses be ready to support that number of students. And I was curious if you could share what kind of environment this creates for students and faculty. There are some pretty striking examples um, about advising, mental health, cultural programs. Um, what is it like to work and research in places where there are too many students?
2: Yeah, you know, the, we call this get big. There's a lot of pressure for these schools to get big and increase enrollment because tuition dollars and, you know, student uh, student Pell Grants, need-based aid, are the one thing that new universities can readily access. And it's the easiest way, (laughs) theoretically, to increase revenue. So it's a bit of an uh, imperative that they grow. And it has really sort of panned out that they could grow in times when other schools could not because they were searching for underserved students in communities and areas that other research, four-year research institutions just didn't um, and weren't willing to serve and weren't interested in serving. So they have had that that ability to to grow. But what they're doing is usually growing the student population to pay the money for the thing that the students three years ago needed. And so the students, they're always playing catch-up. They're never actually enough resources for the existing students because that student money is being used to pay for something that was needed 5, to, you know, 5 years ago. And it does end up leading to a lot of really subpar experiences for students, particularly if you think about the fact that in the UC system the students are paying the same tuition to attend a UC level campus. The state fees, or the campus fees vary, but not by much. We're talking about hundreds, maybe like $1,000 per, you know, different per school. So they're paying for the same thing, but they're not getting the same thing. And, you know, the, the things that they're lacking are things that matter. Things like easy access to an academic advisor, which, is extremely important for a first-generation college student who may not have parents who are familiar with navigating college and may not be comfortable providing advice, even if they have pretty useful advice. That's also things like the cultural infrastructure. Riverside actually had that because it was built in a prior era. But Merced didn't. And so for students that are Latinx, and especially students who are black, who are small small percentage of the campus, the black students, and in both cases, Latinx and black students are living in a world where they're you know disproportionately targeted by police, they face harassment on a daily basis, they need those support systems on their campus. And you know, one of the things that happened during the study is the students at Merced, through a multi-campus consortium, realized that they were the only campus that didn't have a cultural center, like even one. And they, you know, they, they were shocked and they went on uh, their way to push the campus to provide that support. So it, it does end up translating to an experience that is less Rich in resources for students who really deserve them.
1: And to paint the picture from from my reading of the book, um, that academic advisor part seems like something that most people you'd think would consider a pretty basic function of an institution, and yet students, in some cases seem to have been told, you know, wait until your third year and then you could meet an advisor, or it's good enough for you to talk to another student, or they would show up um, at the advisor's office and wait see the, the long, long line and just turn line. back around. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, you know, sort of the base, getting your basic questions answered about your classes. Yeah, and this
2: is one of the things that was really interesting about this, uh, I was talking to a student who was on the research team about this lack of access to advisors. And they were telling me that the community college they came from, and I don't know if this was true, but they were, you know, it seemed so ludicrous, but they were like, oh, no, people set up tents. They, like, camp out in the hallway in the effort to see an advisor. So the access here is bad. It's even worse there, which is entirely what we would expect. And, you know, if money flows on the basis of student composition and disadvantaged students are institutions that receive less, community colleges are grappling with these challenges at an even magnified level uh, relative to any of the UCs.
0: And I think UCR is a great example, um, if we look at it over the course of its development, of what it means to really take on more students than the campus infrastructure can really handle. When the campus came online and it transitioned into um, a research university from its origins were as a liberal arts school. Um, and it, it became a, a research university with graduate education and everything in the 1960s. When the chancellor, Chancellor Ivan Hindenraker comes to campus, he says, everything was there, right? The whole campus was ready to go. All the infrastructure had been built. All we had to do was, was to grow. In the 1990s, as the campus rebuilt and they were trying to repopulate the campus, Chancellor Raymond Orbach at the time, he was growing the campus faster than the the infrastructure was really in place, but there was still the possibility of public funding. And so Ray Orbach could go to the governor of California and say, look, we're growing the campus. We need the infrastructure to support the students. He mobilized the local business community behind him and was able to actually get money from the state to build the campus to support the students that he was attracting. Now the campus is growing faster than the infrastructure can handle, and that infrastructure is starting to um, sort of break down beneath the weight of all that uh, of all those students. And the administration simply cannot go to the state and demand more infrastructure to support them. And so everyone starts to feel the consequences of this. And in we describe this in the book. This resulted in a, a town hall with the faculty and the chancellor and the provost of the university where the faculty just enumerated all the consequences of growing too fast without replacing or building out more infrastructure to support them. And this is because administrators today really have to um, – take the revenue that they can get from all those students and then try to plow that back into the campus. And that's a much bigger challenge than being able to go to the state and get these resources um, to build a campus to support them. So it's, it's a very different uh, type of environment that they're growing in. And it's one where it, it, it appears that it's simply um, uh, not really possible to keep up. The infrastructure is simply breaking down much too quickly.
1: And you make the point also that these are not places that have the same pool of wealthy donors that you can just pick up the phone and call and say, you know, we need a new XYZ and, and someone will write the check, either because they're new or because their alumni are, you know, n- not at the top level jobs at Pepsi. They're at these other jobs at Pepsi. So um, I wanted to ask you one one last question Um You do end the book with some recommendations. I'm curious, what do you think is needed for getting these new universities and maybe even all universities um, to actually function in the best interest of their students?
2: Yeah, we offer a number of suggestions, but we don't have time to, to do all of that. I think I would, the thing I would say is that it was a choice to stop funding higher education at the levels that we were right as we saw an influx of underserved students, students of color, black students, Latinx students entering higher education at far greater rates than white students, and then suddenly the spigot turns off. It's always a choice. We still have a choice to change things, to redirect money to our public systems. We could do this in a couple of ways. We could eliminate three major tax breaks for endowments and direct federal funds towards supporting public institutions serving and graduating marginalized populations. That's happened to some extent during COVID, but even more. And there are reasons to, to do this. You know, In the past, we did this around the Cold War. It was uh, a war-based initiative um, and, we're not interested in a war machine, but an investment in a green future, green energy, climate change, and seeing the universities as the places that are going to get us to a more sustainable future and putting money in in the same way that we did in 19, you know, between 1940 to 1980. A lot of the new universities are well equipped to actually do that. UC Merced, for example, is, um, LEED certified, has, you know, an enormous powerhouse of, of research done both by faculty, graduate students, and undergrads in this area, and has been thinking about climate justice, climate change, and we're not the only school. So these, you know, that's one path forward to funding. Take, take money away from private schools, I'm just going to say it. Also, take them from for-profits. For-profits do not need to be collecting federal funds. And also support a larger reinvestment in higher education in part through uh, getting the public on board with that, like recognizing that universities have the knowledge to help create a more sustainable future.
0: And I would just add that um we would encourage systems to work more as systems, especially like the UC system, um, where there are fewer incentives to um, to keep those private resources on an individual campus. Um, there are fewer incentives for um, say the most elite within a private or within a public system to um, act as if they're a private university and so making Putting putting the systems in place that would allow those private resources, assuming that private resources are still going to play a major role in the funding of public higher education in the near future, that making sure that those private resources are more equitably distributed across campuses, um, so that a donation to UC Berkeley actually benefits UC Merced, um, these uh, these these ways that that. Um, the tuition from international students um, is shared equitably across the campuses as opposed to being kept by those very few campuses that attract the vast majority of international students. And just this in this way, a system functions more like a system and can think in a much more public spirit um, than a private, uh, individualized one.
1: And to just add one more thought to that, um, you, you make the point... That the systems as a whole sort of benefit at least from the perception of serving underserved students, thanks largely to these new universities. Um, so, you know, this idea of sharing resources, um, it, it it ties to that. It seems at some level, you know, if you're going to claim to serve these folks, um, then where's the money? essentially.
0: That's right. Well, There's already sharing going along in the system. It's just a, a, of a different sort. And so, uh, yeah, that's exactly right.
1: Well, thanks to you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been the EdSearch Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage of the future of learning, sign up for EdSurge newsletters or check out our website, edsurge.com. This episode was edited by Jeff Young. Music came from Mont Plaisir. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.